Amen. What a joy it is to worship the Lord today. Uh, let's continue doing that by opening our Bibles to 2 Samuel 19. 2 Samuel chapter 19. It's on page 252 in your pew Bible. And uh, wow, this is really high up here. Uh, David Davies told me before the service, if I start getting lightheaded, feel free to sit down. Uh, I brought a, a Kleenex just in case I get a nosebleed. Um, but we trust that uh, we'll still enjoy our time in God's Word. We're getting uh, everything ready here at the church for Vacation Bible School, which is coming up just a week away, really. And uh, uh, I was taking a tour by our VBS director, Nikki Rogers, on the second floor, and it has been completely transformed. I felt like I was taking a step back in time. And uh, it, they've just done a great job decorating. That will be continuing today right after the service. So thank you to all the men, the women, boys and girls uh, who have been uh, such a tremendous help already in getting us ready for this big week. And uh, we want all of us bathing that week in prayer. Uh, I think we have about 100 children registered with yet another week to go. And uh, we have uh, many, many dozen, I think like uh, 65, 70 volunteers that will be serving our children and their families for VBS week. So um, we definitely want to be praying about that. Second Samuel 19, again, it's on page 252 in your pew Bible. Uh, this isn't going to sound uh, very spiritual. Uh, we sang a lot of great worship songs today. But if I were to ask you, uh, if you were to think of the late Kenny Rogers, most of you have probably heard the name Kenny Rogers, a singer. Uh, what song would come to mind if I were to ask you, what song would you associate with Kenny Rogers? Uh, <laughs> That's what I figured most people would say. My wife actually said Coward of the County. But uh, most people would say the, the Gambler. And I remember when that album came out. I was just 11 years old. And it came out. My parents got it on one of those vinyl records. And uh, I remember I would just sit, just playing it over and over and over. The needle would go all the way. And I'd put it back at the beginning. Or again, put it back at the beginning. I probably wore it out, wore the needle out, just listening to it so many times. Um, and I liked actually a lot of the songs on that album. And one of the songs that came to my mind this week as I thought about this particular text was one that's not known by a lot of people. But I remember even as an 11-year-old, it made quite an impression upon me because of the story that's told in the song. And I learned an important lesson in life, even at that early age, not just from that song, but something that was consistent with what we read in Scripture. The name of the song was, is called The King of Oak Street. And it's written from the perspective of the songwriter who sees this other man that looks like he has the perfect life. Beautiful home, wife, baby. It looks like this guy has everything together and he's living the good life until he's not. But things change in this man's life and it changes the perspective of the songwriter who thought he knew the man that he was describing. Uh, the opening lines describe the King of Oak Street's experience when things went south. He says, like a leaf caught in the wind, he drifted a while with no purpose or direction to his life. He tried to get himself together and pacify his mind and forget about the things he left behind. And as the song goes on, we're told 
that a careless weekend on the other side of town has torn the king of Oak Street's castle down. And this man that seemed to have it all together really hits rock bottom. And he realizes what a mess that he has made for his life and how it has affected those that he loves the most. And he more or less changes his ways. We might say that he repents. And when all seems lost, he's allowed to return home, to begin recovering what he has lost, and to begin rebuilding his life again. And at the very end of the song, having observed what happened in the life of the King of Oak Street, the songwriter says, I've thought the whole thing over, and I think I understand that the King of Oak Street is just an ordinary man. I've thought the whole thing over, and I think I understand that the King of Oak Street is just an ordinary man. It's been well said that the best of men are men at best. But sometimes we forget that and we can put people on a pedestal and from outward appearances it looks like they have it all together. Sometimes we look at our own lives and might think we have it all together. Um, We have in our culture an expression of self-made men or self-made women. And yet the scriptures teach that there is no such thing. Uh, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you act as if you did not receive it? As if this was your doing rather than God's. And so the Lord uses a number of things to teach us the truth about ourselves, about himself, and about others. And the fact is, We all have our share of failures, weaknesses, and faults. That's true of me. It's true of you. It's true of the so-called King of Oak Street or someone that we might perceive that way. And it was true of the King of Israel, David. David's life is a portrait of success and failure. The biblical record shows that David was far from perfect. And if you have been with us for this study, you have seen that there is this man who is a man after God's own heart, but that does not mean in any way that he is perfect, not by a long shot. Because King David, like the king of Oak Street, had a careless weekend, didn't he? It wasn't on the other side of town. It was actually on the very roof of his palace. And that careless weekend was attempted, was followed by an attempted cover-up, which made things even worse. And that whole event in David's life tore his castle down. His family became terribly dysfunctional. And from that day forward was characterized by violence and bloodshed. Most recently we have seen in 2 Samuel that David's own son Absalom has conspired against his father in an attempt to seize the throne of Israel. But in the battle that ensues, Absalom suffers a gruesome death at the hands of Joab, his cousin who was the commander of David's army. Instead of celebrating the victory... David grieves greatly over the death of his son. 
And that's where chapter 18 ends, and it carries on over into chapter 19, our text for today. It sets off a series of challenges that King David faces even after his victory as he returns to Jerusalem to reclaim his throne. And thus the title of today's sermon, The Not-So-Stellar Return of the King. The Not-So-Stellar Return of the King. David's return is marked by confrontation, by conflict, and by concessions that have to be made for the sake of expediency. And so this chapter provides a significant contribution to the storyline of Scripture as a whole, which teaches us that no king but Christ is perfectly victorious. That's the main truth I hope that the Spirit of God will impress upon your minds and hearts today, that no king but Christ is perfectly victorious. Consider first the confrontation between Joab and David. This is in verses 1 to 8 of 2 Samuel 19. And it was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom! Oh, Absalom, my son, my son! Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. You know, considering the loss that King David had just endured. Joab is a bit harsh in his rebuke, isn't he? His statement, you hate those who love you, is an unfair exaggeration. But based on David's behavior, the people might have perceived things that way. As they come slinking back into the city because David is grieving so greatly over the loss of his son Absalom, rather than the victory that they had won for him at the risk of their own lives. And we see again, as we saw last week, that Joab's zeal for justice is countered by David's heart of love. You know, love and justice are both attributes of God. And yet what I want us to consider is that they are, in God's case, never imbalanced. They are never in conflict, and they are never compromised. Both love and justice 
will be demonstrated perfectly when King Jesus returns. It was not demonstrated perfectly when David returned, but it will be demonstrated perfectly when Jesus returns in power and glory. Scripture tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 that God is just. And he will punish those who do not know God and who do not believe and obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's justice. But, Paul says in the very next verse, on that very same day when he comes, he will be exalted by his followers and celebrated by all who believe the gospel. As Jesus Christ continues to pour out his love on those who know him as their Lord, Savior, and King. On that day, you can be assured that King Jesus will not be rebuked. (laughs) He will not be confronted by anybody. For he will exercise perfect love and perfect justice in all his royal resplendence. No king but Christ is perfectly victorious. And that's why we had Bobby read earlier from Psalm 146. Do not put your trust in princes or presidents. Keep that in mind when the election season is upon us. The psalmist says, do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save, but put your trust in the Lord. For he himself has said, whoever puts his trust in me will never be disappointed. Amen? Well, David's return was characterized by confrontation, but that will not be the case when Christ returns. Secondly, David's return was marked by conflict. By conflict. Look at the second half of verse 8 through verse 15. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? Remember, Amasa is his nephew. God do so to me and more also if you do not become commander of my army from now on in the place of Joab. And he swayed, that is, David swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man so that they sent word to the king, Return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. Now, it's important to understand that David is not trying to divide the tribes. He's not trying to set up some sort of rivalry between his tribe of Judah and the ten northern tribes that want to bring David back. But David knows that for his return to be successful, he must win the support of the people of Judah. And the reason is, Absalom's revolt had started in the very heart of Judah, in Hebron. Do you remember that? 
And Ahithophel, the counselor who had betrayed David and had gone over to Absalom, was also from Hebron. And Amasa, David's nephew, who became the commander of Absalom's forces, was also from Hebron. So you can imagine the people of Judah might have been wondering, now that the conspiracy had been crushed, they might have wondered, where do we stand with David? Is he going to come back to us with a scepter or with a sword? And so David makes this persuasive appeal to unite them with himself in bringing him back. Now, look at verses 41 to 43. This is at the very end of the chapter. Then all the men of Israel came to the king, those are the northern tribes, and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Conflict, arguments, envy, strife. As you can see, the people are divided. Harsh words are being exchanged. And as one commentator put it, the rightful king has returned, but there's no peace in the kingdom. The animosity and envy among his subjects threaten its very stability. End quote. So, what caused the kingdom to survive despite all this conflict that threatened its stability? What caused the kingdom to survive for David's dynasty to live on? For we know from the scriptures that his son Solomon becomes king and they prosper greatly under his rule. Why is that when the kingdom's very stability was threatened by the division? I'll tell you why. It was because of God's promise to David back in 2 Samuel 7. Quote, Your throne and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. End quote. And David's throne culminates in the eternal reign of Jesus Christ. So we could ask ourselves, <laughs> what keeps the church the visible representation of God's kingdom on earth, going and growing despite divisions and factions, despite the petty bickering and fussing and backbiting and nitpicking that sometimes characterizes God's people. Why does the church keep going? Why does the church keep growing? It's because of Jesus' promise, I will build my church. And the gates of hell that all the powers of hell will not prevail against it, will not overcome it. Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, because of Jesus' promise, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And he's talking about the day of Jesus' return. And God wants us as believers in Christ, as the body of Christ, as the church of Jesus Christ, to live this day in light of that day. 
And that's why we're told in Scripture to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, to bear with one another and to build up with one another so that with one mind and one voice we may glorify God together. That is the way Jesus wants His church to be. And yet this reality was not fully achieved when David returned. As you can see, there was division in the kingdom. But there will be no division among God's people when Christ returns. Because with one voice, one mind, we will glorify together the God of our salvation. Let's look at the third challenge that David faced. Several concessions had to be made. We've already seen the confrontation with Joab, that tension between love and justice. We have seen uh, the uh, conflict among the tribes of Israel, that they were divided even as the rightful king returns. And now in the heart of the chapter, the bulk of the chapter, verses 16 to 40, we see that David is forced to make some concessions. He encounters various individuals, and ends up making uh, concessions for the sake of expediency. And the first individuals that he encounters are Shimei and Ziba, or Ziba, sometimes pronounced. Shimei and Ziba. Look at verses 16 to 23. And Shimei, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite from Behurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his fifteen sons and his twenty servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gerah, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Oh, let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day that my Lord the King left Jerusalem. Do not let the King take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down and meet my Lord the King. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What do I have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For for do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. So first he encounters Shimei. And you remember who Shimei is, right? The constant critic who hurled stones and insults and curses at David when he was at the lowest point of his life, fleeing for his life from Jerusalem on the run from Absalom. And now that David's army has been victorious and he has retained his rule and is returning to Jerusalem, now guess who wants to be his BFF? Guess who wants to make good with David? Shimei must have known how gracious and forgiving David was, or else he would have turned tail and run for his life. The Geneva Bible notes say, In David's adversity, 
Shimei was his cruelest enemy. Now in David's prosperity, Shimei seeks by flattery to creep into his favor. Because as Scripture would later indicate, a part of Scripture that's not part of this actual series, Shimei's request for forgiveness was simply a scheme to save his own skin. And he would eventually die because just as he broke faith with David, he would end up breaking faith with Solomon and pay the ultimate price. But on this occasion, David chose him mercy, much to the, appoint, to the disappointment of Abishai, his nephew, who wanted, remember, to cut off Shimei's head. Remember, uh, headless guys don't curse. Headless guys don't criticize. And, and so Abishai is very practical. Well, let's just cut off his head and that'll be the end of that. Well, he still wants Shimei dead. But if David executes Shimei, then the Benjamites and the other tribes might wonder if their heads are going to roll. So David spares Shimei, I believe, in part for political expediency, but I believe also that he doesn't want to be given to personal revenge. The point is, is that Shimei's disposition before David did not reveal a true change of heart. But David shows him mercy regardless. And Shimei is quickly followed by Ziba, who rushes to get to David with his 15 sons and 20 servants to bring the king's household back over the Jordan and to do, the text says, whatever pleases the king. Ziba, remember, is the opportunist. Remember when David was on the run from Absalom? Ziba brought him foods and supplies, probably at the expense of Mephibosheth, right? The crippled son of Jonathan, whom Ziba had been assigned to to care for. And when, Z- Z- when David asked Ziba, where is Mephibosheth? Ziba lies and says, oh, he stayed back in Jerusalem. He was part of the conspiracy, thinking that if Absalom wins, maybe he'll gain back the kingdom of his grandfather, Saul lying through his teeth. But as David draws closer to Jerusalem, he's now met by Mephibosheth, who finally gets the opportunity to speak for himself. Look at verses 24 to 30. I'm actually going to read this in the New Living Translation because I think it's it's actually a better translation and communicates more clearly. Verses 24 to 30. Now Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, came down from Jerusalem to meet the king. He had not cared for his feet, trimmed his beard, or washed his clothes since the day the king left Jerusalem. Why didn't you come with me, Mephibosheth? The king asked him. Mephibosheth replied, My lord, the king, my servant Ziba deceived me. I told him, saddle my donkey so I can go with the king. For as you know, I am crippled. Ziba has slandered me by saying that I refuse to come. But I know that my lord, the king, is like an angel of God. So do what you think is best. All my relatives and I could expect only death from you, my Lord. But instead, you have honored me by allowing me to eat at your own table. What more can I ask? You've said enough, David replied. I've decided that you and Ziba will divide your land equally between you. Give them all of it, Mephibosheth said. I am content just to have you safely back again, my Lord, the king. You say, well, how do you know who's telling the truth here? Well, for one thing, Mephibosheth's sincerity is evident not only by what he says, but what David sees. Ever since David left, 
Mephibosheth has let himself go. His toenails are untrimmed. His face is unshaven. His body, his clothes are unwashed. It's as if his disheveled appearance revealed that he was with David in spirit during his days of exile. And that's not something that he could just appear that way overnight when he found out that David was returning. It was obvious that he had been in mourning for David. Dale Davis writes, Mephibosheth was lame and limited, but loyal. Oddly enough, toenails and facial hair and dirty clothes were the sacraments of his faithfulness. He did what he could. End quote. How did David reward him? Well, earlier, when Ziba had lied about Mephibosheth, David told Ziba that he could have all of the land that had been given to Mephibosheth. And now David reverses the decision, but only halfway. David has them divide the land equally between them. David shouldn't have done that. David should have given all of the land back to Mephibosheth. But, though Ziba had lied, he also had clout. Fifteen sons, twenty servants. When you're trying to regain and consolidate your power upon your return, a guy like Ziba is a man to be contended with, to be reckoned with. And David needed all the support he could get upon his return. So I believe that in this case, based on what the Scripture says, I think pragmatism rather than justice prevailed in this situation. David feels bad for Mephibosheth, but he really doesn't want to make Ziba his enemy. He's coming back into kind of this um, insecure, uh, unsettled uh, state of the kingdom. And so he's garnering all the support he can. So pragmatism rather than justice prevails. And again, we're reminded from the teaching of God's word as a whole that that will not happen when Jesus returns. Because God doesn't need anything from anybody. God doesn't need to make any concessions. And because Jesus is God, Jesus is entirely self-sufficient. Listen, Jesus doesn't need any one of us. But every one of us needs Jesus. That's the message of Scripture. King Jesus will make no concessions when he returns. The Bible says in Psalm 2 that the ends of the earth will be his possession and that he will rule with a rod of iron. And that's why the psalmist goes on to say, Now then, you kings, act wisely. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Submit to God's royal son or he will become angry and you will perish in the midst of all your activities because his anger is flared up in an instant. Oh, but what joy for all who take refuge in him. Well, let's look at the next individual, the last individual really in this chapter that David encounters and that is Barzillai, verses 31 to 40. Now Barzillai, the Gileadite, had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim. You might remember that. For he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, 
come over with me and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, how many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please, let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Kimham. Let him go over with my lord the king and, and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Kimham shall go over with me. And I will do for him whatever seems good to you and all that your desire of me I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan and the king went over and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal and Kimham went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Barzillai. Nice old man, rich old man, loyal and benevolent, but old and weary. He's losing his hearing. He says, I can't distinguish the sounds of singing men and women. I can't tell what's pleasant and not. I'm losing my senses. I can't taste anything anymore. I can't taste good food. I can't taste good wine and all that. I'm too tired to go over with you and I don't want to be a burden to you. And so he sends Kimham, who he said he refers to Kimham as David's servant, but Kimham may have been Barzillai's son. Barzillai will walk with the king, but only part way, and then go back to his own home where he'll die and be buried near his mom and dad. You know, even after Barzillai's death, he was not forgotten by David. Near the end of the king's life, when he was giving instructions to his son Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 2, David said to Solomon, Be kind to the sons of Barzillai of Gilead. Make them permanent guests at your table, because they took care of me when I fled from your brother Absalom. So David is forced to make another concession in the case of Barzillai. Because Barzillai was close to death, he didn't want to go back with David. He felt he couldn't go back with David because he was old and eventually he was going to die. His body was already wearing out. David was getting old too. And he too would eventually die, which is why he had to leave instructions for Solomon to take care of the sons of Barzillai. Another concession the best that David could do was to have his son care for Barzillai's sons because both he and Barzillai would soon be dead. But friends, that will not be the case when the followers of Jesus Christ welcome back their king. Because he has conquered death for all who trust in him. When Jesus returns, the scriptures assure us that those believers who have died will be raised to live forever with him. And the bodies of those of us who are still alive 
when the Lord returns, will be transformed into bodies that will never die. So that in the coming ages, Ephesians 2 says, God will continue to shower His grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. He won't leave the task to someone else. Not someone else besides us will get the blessing. The Lord Jesus forever and ever and ever will be blessing every child of His forever and ever and ever because our bodies will be raised incorruptible. And we will sit at the king's table. And we will feast with him forever and ever, with none of our senses dulled, but every part of our bodies more alive than they've ever been here on earth. And we will reign with him forever and ever. Remember, no king but Christ is perfectly victorious. But he is. And so put your trust in Christ alone. And thank God for the victory you have in him. Let's pray. Lord, we, we love the character of David because he was a man after your own heart. And yet his life is a portrait of success and failure. And he reminds us in so many ways of ourselves so easily given to doing wrong and so eager to repent and be right with you. And we thank you for this chapter, Lord. Though it's lengthy and involves many different characters, Lord, we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. Help us to realize how this chapter fits in the beautiful grand story of Scripture. That no king but you, O Lord, are perfectly victorious. And so we put our trust in you. And we thank you for your promise that those who trust in you will never be put to shame, but we will feast forever with you in your kingdom. And for that, we give you praise and glory today and every day. In Christ's name, amen.